I've got, I've got two short videos right in the beginning. I, I ran across one I thought it was very interesting. It was, it's more for the women. Because there might be some women in here that are just like, ah, I'm just coming along because my husband's making me. And my husband's really the one that needs to learn the apologetics and be able to defend the faith. And I ran across this. It's an apologetics instructor. Her name is Mary Jo Sharp. She talks about the importance of apologetics for females. And then the second video is about a one-minute clip, and it's by J.P. Moreland. He's a Christian philosopher out of Biola University. And he explains and defines what it means to love the Lord your God with all your mind. Here's the first one answers to curious questions. Mary Jo, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with you too. My question for you today on the One Minute Apologist is how do we get women engaged in apologetics? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, one of the things that I've found is that we really need to establish what the need is for apologetics in women's ministry because we have these women's ministries that are in existence all over the country and what we need to do is show them that apologetics is something that is important to them, that it has um, relational aspect with their family members, with uh, the community that they're involved in, and that it can be very impacting on those relationships. Um, showing women what the take-home value of apologetics is, that they're not just going to learn to make arguments, but that this is something that they can use in their everyday life with family members and friends um, to establish that, uh, to answer those questions that they may have about the faith. That's one of the things that we need to do with women's ministries is really show them the need for the importance of this in their own lives and therefore in the lives of the women's ministry. One major point is the transformation that it can have on each individual woman and then that transformation being effective out into those relationships. So that gal's name is Mary Jo Sharp. And the second video is on loving the Lord your God with all your mind. Questions. Dr. Moreland, what does it mean to love God with all of our mind? I think it really means two things. First, it means to devote your mind to God like you would devote your heart or your will. So that means you'll study, you'll learn, you'll be growing, you'll listen to tapes, you'll listen to websites that involve the mind, because you want to devote your mind and its development to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You don't want to be a couch potato when it comes to reading. The second thing it means is that you allow the teachings of Jesus and the Bible to serve as control beliefs, mm-hmm. that, that you try to find ways to defend and to undergird those beliefs, but those are the beliefs that set the rails for your life, and your, your job is to defend and understand and articulate those. And so it means to love God with your mind in the sense that you devote the development of your mind to God, and it means to love God with your mind in the sense that you are going to allow His Word to have authority over your thinking. For those of you who hate to read, I may have offended you. He's saying, don't be a couch potato when it comes to reading. Read, listen, just train your mind. I was listening to a story about Ravi Zacharias. And this is when he was, he, he was talking about a story when he first started teaching. And he didn't really have much of a filter on his mouth. He, he just barely started. And this lady comes up to him at the end of this week of training. And she says, she says I feel like I have blisters on my brain. And he says, it's funny you should say that, because I don't work with hammers and nails that often. And the other weekend, I had to work with some hammers and nails, and I got blisters on my hand. 
Isn't it funny how when you don't use something that often, you tend to get more blisters? <laughs> it's got truth to it. It wasn't, it wasn't done in the best way, and Ravi will even admit that, but he's showing a fact there. If you're not using something, it tends to be harder and more difficult. And it's the same thing with reading. He mentions reading in there. When, when I stopped reading for about a week straight, more, let's say a couple months actually, it's harder for me to get back into reading. But if I'm continually reading, then, and I'm staying in material and I'm continually reading, I'm continually renewing my mind in scriptures, it, I, I stay in a flow and I stay in a process and it, it just tends to be easier. So today, we're going to talk about other worldviews. You may have in your mind that I'm going to be talking about like Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, something like that. I decided the three the three one three topics I decided to choose. I, I choose I chose atheism because it ties back to week two when I talk about the existence of God. I talk about Jehovah Witnesses and their view on the resurrection, which ties back to the third week on the resurrection of Christ. And then the third topic is Mormonism and their view on creation. And that ties back as well to the existence of God, week two. I'm showing these videos. Pretty much tonight is going to be, it's kind of like I'm throwing a boomerang. I'm, I'm coming back around to, to all the weeks we've gone through. And the videos here kind of tie back to week one and the importance of apologetics and being able to defend our faith. Before I get into the material, let me go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, just pray tonight that you you fill this room with your spirit. You give me the words to say. You give us the wisdom. Uh, Open our hearts to what you'd like to have us hear and understand. Allow me to be able to get what's in my head out in a clear and understandable way. In your precious name, amen. So the first thing we're going to be talking about is atheism, which ties back to week two, as I said. Now, atheism is the denial of God. Atheism just doesn't, it doesn't just say, we don't think there's a God. It says, there is no God. It comes from the Greek word, atheos. It's only used one time in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Ephesians 2. So in Ephesians 2.1, he's, he's talking about how we're dead in our sins and trespasses, how we used to be. And then God made us alive with Christ. And then he goes on in 2.12, he says that we are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God, atheos, without God in the world. That's how we were. To the Greeks, it would mean godless or denying the gods. Now, anybody that knows anything about philosophy, when you make an absolute statement like that, there is no God. It's like me saying, there is no white rocks with black polka dots in the entire universe. It's making a universal claim, and it's, they have a, a large burden of proof to prove now, atheism, back in the 90s, the 80s and the 90s, the, the big debate was evolution. Evolution was the argument they would try to use to, prove, to disprove the existence of God. 
It's changed now. And I'll get, to, I'll get to what's called new atheism. I don't know if you've ever heard the terms new atheism. Has anybody ever heard Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, guys like that? That's the new atheist movement. But back in the 90s, evolution was kind of the big thing. When I was growing up, I always had this idea that when somebody was teaching evolution, they were teaching against the existence of God, and that was kind of the big argument against the existence of God. I've got a video here. It's, it was a classic debate. Lee Strobel put this on back. Does, does everybody know who Lee Strobel is? He wrote the case for faith, the case for Christ. And he said, I, I would like to get the, let's get the, the most brilliant atheists out there, and let's put them up against one of the most brilliant Christian thinkers out there, and let's just have a debate. This debate took place in 1993. It was in Willow Creek Church. They thought a couple hundred people were going to show up. About an hour before the event, busloads of people were showing up. There were at least several thousand. It was standing only. So it was a major event. In the video, William Lane Craig is giving a rebuttal to the atheist Frank Zindler. Frank Zindler kept using, trying to use evolution to disprove the existence of God. Look out what William Lane Craig says. Now, what about the question of evolution? Let me submit to you that this is a complete red herring. The theory of evolution is irrelevant to the truth of the Christian faith. Uh, Genesis 1 permits all manner of different uh, interpretations, and Christians are not necessarily committed to special creationism. Howard Van Til of Calvin College, a Christian school, uh, asks, is the concept of special creation required of all persons who trust in the creator God of Scripture? Most Christians in my acquaintance who are engaged in either scientific or biblical scholarship have concluded that the special creationist picture of the world's formation is not a necessary component of Christian belief. And I want to emphasize this is not a retreat caused by modern science. St. Augustine in the 300s in his commentary on Genesis argued that the days needn't be taken literally nor need the creation be a few thousand years ago. He didn't even envisage special acts of creation. He said the world could have been made by God with certain potencies that unfolded in the progress of time. This interpretation was enunciated 1,500 years prior to Darwin, and therefore this is a, a position that's consistent with being a Christian. Any doubts that I might have about the theory of evolution really are not biblical but scientific, namely what the scenario envisages is just so fantastically improbable. Uh, in their book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle, Barrow and Tipler lay out ten steps necessary to the course of human evolution, each of which, each of which is so improbable that before it would occur, the sun would have ceased to be a main sequence star and would have burned up the earth. Now, it seems to me that if evolution did occur, then it would have had to have been a miracle. In other words, Evolution is literally evidence for the existence of God. In fact, the Christian has an advantage over the atheist here. We can be open to what the evidence shows us. But as Alvin Plantinga points out, for the atheist, you see, evolution is the only game in town. So he's stuck with it, no matter how fantastic the odds, no matter how poor the evidence, he's got no choice. But the Christian can be open to follow the evidence where it leads, and therefore, I think, can be more objective. Ouch. 
Great rebuttal. So now with the new atheist, the new atheist movement's kind of shifted modes. I think new atheism, first of all, new, new atheism is nothing that much different than atheism. It's just a new flavor. It's just to add a little pizzazz. I got an email from Redbox. I don't know if you guys go to Redbox often, but there's just a kiosk, you know, a big red kiosk, and you go in there and you get a movie and you take the movie out and go watch it. I got an email where Redbox now, if you touch the screen, it changes colors depending on what kind of movie, what kind of mood you're in or what kind of movie you want to watch. There's nothing different about the key. There's nothing different about the movie you're getting. There's nothing different about the service. They're just adding a little flair, and that's like the new atheists. The new atheists, what they focus on, I believe, new atheism took root and became very popular after September 11th, because after September 11th, you had the Islamic Jihad. You had a lot of these jihadists, and religion, all of religion, got put into the same bowl. And there's just this broad brush stroke over all of religion. So the new atheists have someone to blame. They blame religion for poisoning our society and for all the violence. So they'll point out atrocities, the Crusades, the Inquisitions. And they'll also try to make faith look inferior. So not only is the atrocities, but they act like faith like, if you have any kind of faith, it takes away from the truth. I've got a video here as well from John Lennox uh, talking in debate with Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens, he passed away about a year ago of cancer. He's, he was a big, outspoken spoken, uh, atheist from the New Atheist Movement. I want you to notice two things in here. John Lennox is addressing, addressing the two major things. One... The new atheist trying to acute, trying to say that all religion is bad because of, it pollutes society. That's the first thing he addresses. And the second thing he addresses is this idea of faith being inferior. I agree very much with Christopher Hitchens. It is repudiation of many of the evils that he claims have been done in the name of God. But I've learned to distinguish between the greatness of God and the inexcusable evil that has been done by those professing his name. And so I do not deduce that God is not great and that religion poisons everything. After all, if I fail to distinguish between the genius of Einstein and the abuse of his science to create weapons of mass destruction, I might be tempted to say science is not great and technology poisons everything. What is more, as I look back at the evils of atheist regimes of the 20th century, I might also be tempted, ladies and gentlemen, to say atheism is not great. It has poisoned everything. As it is, I hold that science shows some of the greatness of God. Now, so often we hear the new atheists talk about faith and deprecating it. But I want to tell you that scientists are all people of faith, as Einstein saw. They believe that the universe is accessible to the human mind. 
And physics cannot explain that for the simple reason that you can't do physics without believing that the universe is intelligible. So scientists required faith, and yet I read Christopher Hitchens saying, if one must have faith to believe in something, then the likelihood of that something having truth or value is considerably diminished. Pardon? Well, one must have faith that the universe is intelligible to do science. So I am to deduce, am I, that the likelihood of science having truth or value is considerably diminished? Exit science then. And I presume that Christopher Hitchens, like most of the rest of us, believes in his own existence. Yes, am I to take it then that the likelihood he really does exist is considerably diminished? His statement is a self-refuting statement. And I find it ironical that the so-called new atheists are so passionate about ridding the world of faith that they appear to be blind to the fact that they themselves are driven by faith. They believe that their minds can grasp truth. They believe in science. They believe that God is not great. Yet Mr. Hitchens informs us in a classic oxymoron, our principles are not a faith. Our beliefs are not a belief. The mind boggles, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not going to be showing any videos the whole evening. I'm, this is my last night teaching for this series, and so I'm trying to get as many names out there as possible, so I'm just throwing out some videos for you guys. So the first video, Mary Jo Sharp. The second video was J.P. Moreland. The third video was William Lane Craig, who I've mentioned before. I've mentioned most of these people before. And then John Lennox, the Irish accent. So with the new atheist movement, they have a, a very strong stance on science, what you would call scientific positivism, where only science can answer for all truth, only empirical science. Well, the first flaw that I see with atheism is the absurdity of life without God. The Enlightenment came about to try to put man on a pedestal and remove God. The Enlightenment brought the idea that man could figure out their own, their own paths through knowledge, through reason, through technology. In the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche, who brilliantly prophesied what would happen, he himself saw the philosophy of modernism and what would happen when God is removed from society. When you hear the phrase, God is dead, that comes from Friedrich Nietzsche. Adolf Hitler loved his writings. He personally presented copies of Nietzsche to Joseph Stalin and Mussolini. And Friedrich Nietzsche, he predicted that the 20th century would be the most bloody century in all of human history. And he was right. I've got a parable here by Nietzsche. It's called The Madman. In it, there's a this, there's this struggle with this madman who is jumping out in the streets and he's screaming things. And there's people that are indifferent, people that don't believe in God that are indifferent to this. And you start to see the madman wrestling with these ideas. What is society like when God is removed? This is how it goes. Have you not heard of that madman? 
who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost, asked one. Did he lose his way like a child, asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped in their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who wiped his blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he himself would belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern to the ground and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early. He said then, my time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars require time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. And this deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars. And yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on that same day, the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem, Eternum Deo, led out and called to account. He, it was said that he replied nothing but, what after all are all these churches now, if not the tombs and sepulchers of God? It's the parable of the madman. It was Nietzsche wrestling with this. Nietzsche spent the last 13 years of his life in insanity. I believe the madman portrayed what he eventually would be, where he saw that this philosophy that of God not existing, what would happen in society, and it drove him to a mental breakdown. Just look at the questions he asks. Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying us through an infinite nothing? Is not darkness closing in on us? 
to me, it's kind of it's kind of nauseating. It makes me think of when I was uh, getting scuba diving certified, and I was in the I was in the pool. It was a twelve foot pool, and I was coming up. We were practicing our ascension out of the water, and I must have held my breath for too long. But when I got to the top, my equilibrium was all messed up. The whole earth was. It was shaking, turning in different directions. I didn't know what was up or down. I had to brace myself. I had to grab the side of the pool and brace myself because I, I was getting nauseous and I could not see where I was at. I was, I was all messed up. That's what I think. That's what this struggle is showing here is when God's out of society, what's our anchor? We're all over the place. And Nietzsche was honest about it. Ravi Zacharias said that compared to Nietzsche... The new atheists are like kids playing in the backyard. Nietzsche saw what was going to happen. I saw this poem. I ran across this poem the other day. It has such great insight. It was written by Arthur Guterman in 1936. He says, First dentistry was painless. Then bicycles were chainless. And carriages were horseless. This was in 1936. And many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless, telegraphy was wireless, cigars were nicotineless, and coffee caffeineless. Soon oranges were seedless, the putting green was weedless, the college boy hatless, the proper diet fatless. Now motor roads are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sodless, our new religions godless. The first thing is the absurdity of life without God. The second point I'd like to make, the second flaw of atheism that I'd like to make, is the human predicament. This comes from Francis Schaeffer. He termed human predicament. He talked about the absurdity of life without God. Without God, life is absurd. There's no ultimate significance or meaning in life. John Paul Sartre, the French philosopher said that pure existence is nauseating. Just like I was nauseated when I was coming up out of the water, I felt nauseous. Just as uh, the, reading the poem by Nietzsche, or the parable by Nietzsche, it, could, it makes me not, nauseous just thinking about it. Albert Camus, who was also a French philosopher, pointed to the same thing, that life was absurd. But Albert Camus was an outspoken critic of the Holocaust, but if life is absurd, then who is he to stand here and say that what that happened in the Holocaust was wrong? Dr. L.D. Rue said in a conference in 1991 that we must build our lives on a noble lie. In other words, we need to live our lives in self-deception and pretend that there's purpose and meaning in life. John Paul Sartre chose Marxism. Stalin chose communism. Adolf Hitler chose national socialism. Because of Nietzsche's writings, Hitler coined this phrase. It's at the top of the gas chambers in Auschwitz. I got to go to Dachau, which is a concentration camp. But I didn't get to actually go to a death camp. Auschwitz is a death camp. In the top of the gas chamber, it says, I want to raise a generation of young people who are devoid of conscience, imperious, relentless, 
and cruel. There is no ultimate value without God. Hitler was living in self-delusion, and many that whole national socialist during World War II was all living off of Nietzsche's philosophy that life is meaningless. Joseph Goebbels, one of the propaganda ministers of the Nazi party, he said, we need to get rid of this outmoded Christianity. We need to bring in our own, the survival of the fittest. Our gospel is national socialism. National socialism is my God. They replace God with something else. In this case, the Nazis' national socialism was their God. So the, fir- the, first, the first flaw, like I said, was the absurdity of life without God. The second was the human predicament. The third flaw of atheism is no ultimate value without God. The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky said that if there is no immortality, then all things are permitted. Why shouldn't we be selfish if there's nothing beyond the grave? Why should we not look out for our own self-interest if there is no immortality? To sacrifice ourselves, to be self-sacrificing is ridiculous if there is no immortality. In the end, it is impossible to condemn war or genocide. Good and bad don't exist. Right and wrong do not exist. Even Richard Dawkins contradicts himself because he says, faith can be a very dangerous and deliberately to implant it in the vulnerable mind of an innocent child is a grievous wrong. He's making a truth claim there, and he's using the terms wrong. But according to him, what is right and wrong? There is no right or wrong. There's no ultimate value. Since since the atheists like to remove God from society, they start to give, they got to have some kind of personality in nature. So they'll start to capitalize nature with an N. You'll hear Mother Earth, it's capitalized. You'll hear things like natural processes, she wanted to go this way. And so atheists try to throw in some kind of personality to get around that. They have to have, feel like there's some kind of value, some kind of personality behind everything. The next, the, the next flaw is, of atheism is no ultimate purpose without God. Francis Schaeffer said that if God is dead, then man is too. Like King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, the, the verse at the beginning of the notes, he says, like the children, of man, the children of man, like the children of the beast, are the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. They come from the same dust, and they return to the same dust. We're no better than, animal, than any other animal. John Paul Sartre, just like Dr. Rue, said that people can live as if there's meaning in life. He was living in self-delusion. It's saying, let's pretend the universe has meaning. It does not, if God does not exist, then life is objectively meaningless. The next flaw, the practical impossibility of atheism. Bertrand Russell said that we must live our lives on the firm foundation of unyielding despair. We live our lives in despair. Francis Schaeffer gives an analogy 
of a two-story house. On the lower level is where there's no values, where it's meaningless. This is where the atheist would sit, is where there's no values, God doesn't exist. And on the second floor, you have God, and you have objective moral values and duties. But what Francis Schaeffer points out is with an, when an atheist points to things like genocide and war, he says the atheists are making a leap up to the second level when they really don't belong on that second level because they deny God in the first place. That's the impractical, that's the practical impossibility that Francis Schaeffer points out. And this also, when an atheist talks about evil, about trying to use evil as an argument against the existence of God, he's actually pointing more towards evidence for God. They talk as if God and evil are logically inconsistent. I could actually reword the argument. It's in your notes. This goes back to week two, the uh, moral value. Premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Premise two, evil exists. Premise three, therefore, objective moral values exist. Some things are actually evil. Premise four, therefore, God exists. So somebody, if you're talking with somebody and they try to use the issue of evil, they try to use the problem of evil to, to disprove the existence of God, this is something you can point out, that God and evil are not logically inconsistent. It's actually pointing towards the existence of God. Now, the success of biblical Christianity, whereas the atheist life in reality, is meaningless. But with Christianity, we have hope. According to God, because of his mercy, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. We have a hope. We have a soul. There is immortality. We will be, we will be re- re- resurrected in a glorious body, and there is eternity. Pascal said that we have nothing to lose but eternity to gain. So that was the first worldview was atheism. Does anybody have any questions on that? Any questions about the madman? Because Amanda, when I told her the madman the other night, she's like, what the heck? What does that mean? What are you saying there? There's a lot of things to see in that parable. Something else, Pascal, when you, when you read Pascal's reading, in his, in his writings, he'll complain about the indifference that people have towards uh, theism and towards God. And you'll no, you notice that in that parable as well. Nietzsche points it out. These people are standing around, they're laughing at him. They're laughing at this madman, kind of like, who cares? We don't believe in God, it doesn't matter. They're indifferent. No questions? And who was that? Kellogg. Interesting. And now today, all of his hospitals, all of the hospitals exist. 
Jason? Why why despair? That's what Russell said. Um, he was a little more hardcore than some of the other ones. Um, he was living less in this I this kind of this self delusion, kind of acting like there's meaning and purpose, and he understood that, just like Nietzsche. Nietzsche didn't, Nietzsche didn't just act like life was meaningless. He actually lived it out. And that's where uh, we get the idea of nihilism, the, the idea that life is uh, absurd and all the reality is, is meaningless. And Russell was say, he was, a, he was brilliant in what he was saying. He was saying that we, we live in despair, that we're trying to grasp at, at meaning. There's no like anchor. We're lost. And, a lot of a lot of atheists that just walk around and don't really think this out, they probably don't feel like their lives are full of despair. But when you start to think it out, as as people like Nietzsche did and Russell and Albert Camus and these guys, when you start to actually think it out, then you start to realize like, my life could be really short. Once my life ends, there's nothing past that, and then that's where the, kind of that despair comes from. So. Yeah, I mean, you, you may be talking to somebody on the street, and they may be an atheist, and they're, they're not even really thinking about the future. I'm, future. I mean, ha- half of us don't even think about a retirement, let alone, hey, I could be dying tomorrow, or I could be dying. You know, what's going to happen when I die? Any other questions? Okay. We may not get time to get to the third one, which is Mormonism. I, I have it all in the notes, and there's actually... Uh, reference at the back that does a really good job, a thorough overview of that. The Jehovah Witnesses, I want to make sure we try to get that because that's pretty important. So we covered atheism. Now Jehovah Witnesses. Is Jesus, is it, was it Jesus that rose from the dead or was it Casper the ghost? I should mention I'm not going over all of Jehovah Witnesses' beliefs because if you go to relement.org, uh, Aaron actually did an entire series called World Religions, and he covered Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism. I believe he covers, covers uh, atheism. And then he talks about a lot of Eastern religions. That's why I'm picking these specific ones, because it kind of ties back to the previous weeks that I taught on. So I'm going to be talking specifically about the Jehovah Witnesses' belief of the, they believe Jesus rose from the dead just as a spiritual form, and God kind of just took his body away. Whereas Christians, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. It's a a big difference. So the first person that preached the bodily resurrection was Paul. In 1 Corinthians uh, 15, when I talk about the resurrection of Jesus, what Paul recites in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 is an early creed that's within five years of Christ's death. He says, what I delivered to you is of first importance is what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. When he says he was buried and he was raised on the third day, to the Jews that meant a bodily resurrection. They understood that. 
Philippians 3.21, Paul says he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. The Greek word used is soma, which is important. Later on, we'll begin into a little bit of Greek. So you don't have to just say, it sounds like he's speaking Greek to me, because I'll actually be saying some Greek words. Romans 8.11, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Colossians 2.9, All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's in present tense, and he's using the same Greek word, soma. So he's currently lit, he's currently dwells in bodily form. Peter preached the bodily resurrection. Acts 2.25-27. I'm going through a lot of verses here. We're going to camp out a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Corinthians 2. So don't worry about going back and forth. I've got all the references there for you, though. Acts 2.25-27. Peter also talks about the Lord not seeing decay. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter in Acts 10, 39-41, he says, And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate, this is important, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He was eating and he was drinking with them. I should mention the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, what the Jehovah Witnesses say is that Jesus kind of put on a body. In essence, he was deceiving the disciples because he's putting on his body and acting like he's not a spirit, but he really is a spirit according to Jehovah Witnesses. For some reason, I get this image of science of the lambs in my head. I don't know if you guys have ever seen science of lambs where he's sewing together these pieces of skin from these bodies and he's making this suit. I don't know. For some reason, I just pop, Buffalo Bill popped in my head when, when I was preparing this. The Gospels present the bodily resurrection. Matthew 28, 9, the women touched Jesus. They took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Matthew 28, 13, the Jewish leaders said that the disciples stole the body. Tell everybody that they stole the body. That's implying, like I said in the week on the resurrection, that's uh, attestation from an enemy source. They're trying to make excuses why the tomb is empty. If the tomb's empty, there is no body there. Mark sixteen six, And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Luke 24, 5 through 6, Luke contrasts Jesus as living and not being in the tombs of the dead corpses. Uh, why do you seek the living among the dead? Luke 24, 36 through 43 is the most obvious. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? He's like, Let's grub. You know, okay, we're here, let's eat. 
a spirit wouldn't, Casper the ghost wouldn't be sitting there wanting to eat some food after they just touched his physical body, and now he's wanting to eat. John 2, 18 through 22, uh, uh, Christ prophesies. He, he says, uh, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And the disciples remembered that later on after the resurrection. I'm going to skip down to John, John 20, verses 24 through 28. That's when Jesus invites Thomas to touch him. And it goes like this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, in other translations is uh, Didumos, is how you pronounce it. Uh, Thomas the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails and place my finger into, the mark, into those marks and place my hands in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. The Jehovah Witnesses have a New World Translation. I don't even want to call it a translation. They deceptively take out any references to the deity of Christ. For instance, John 1.1, John 8.58. This is one of the only areas they have not taken this out. When Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And they, they make... I've heard so many different excuses, so many different t- ways of them trying to get around that, around how obvious that is that Thomas is calling him God, my Lord and my God. Now, if you, if you have your Bibles, we're going to camp out a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 15. It's actually going to be 15, 15, 40, I believe it's 42 through 46. Paul was talking about the resurrection of Christ at the beginning of 15. He's talking about the importance of it. And now he's talking about how we will be raised in a similar manner. He says, just like the resurrection, so it is with the resurrection. What is sown, what is sown in weakness is sown in power. It is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. When we look at that, and he talks about the, the natural comes first and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was a living being. The last man, Adam, is a life-giving spirit. The natural comes first. The spiritual comes second. When you first look at that, it almost looks like Paul's contrasting physical material with spiritual, as if we're, when we die, we're a physical being, and then, we, when, then we're a spiritual being. But the Greek word, and I actually have all the Greek, the important relevant Greek words to this in your notes. When he uses, he uses the, and for natural, he uses the Greek word sukinos. For the word spiritual, he uses pneumatikos. And this is important because if you go back to 1 Corinthians 2, if you have time to go back there, if not, it, he says, but the natural person does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things. 
When he uses, but the natural person does not understand, he uses the Greek word sukinos, the same one that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 15, and the same word for spiritual, pneumatikos. Paul's using sukinos in 1 Corinthians 2 to refer to an unsaved person, and the spiritual person, he uses the same as 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul is saying is he's saying where we die, we are buried, we still have worldly passions, we still have sin that affects our lives, and temptations, and sensual uh, pleasures, worldly lusts. But then we're, we're so to the ground, it's like committing seed. It, he uses the analogies of, of, of seeds. We're committed to the ground, and then we're raised, fully glorified, with a renewed body. There is no longer sinful appetites when we're raised from the dead. We're, we're, buried, we're buried mortal and we're raised immortal. That's the distinction that he's making. If we say that he's talking about a spiritual, that we're raised just spiritual, a lot of the New Testament won't even make sense. In Romans 8, Paul says that we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves have in the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, Soma. It only makes sense in the New Testament. If Paul wanted to talk about material, the difference between material and spiritual, he would have used a different Greek word. For instance, I've got these in your notes as well. 1 Corinthians 9, 3-10. Paul says, If we sowed spiritual, pneumatikos, things in you, is it too much if we reap material, sarkikos, things from you? Sarkikos means fleshly, material, physical. It comes from the root word sarks, which means flesh. I have, all, I have those listed in your notes. You can go back to those later if you want. What about Paul when he talks about flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? Well, it's a common Jewish expression. It's talking about mortal. Mortal man cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But when we rise from the dead, we are at that point immortal. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying that material, a physical body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. John Dominic Crosson, I want to say croissant. He's from the Jesus Seminar. And he admits that for Paul, the bodily resurrection is the only way Jesus' continued, continued presence was expressed. I've got one more video here. We're running out of time. Uh, what's the... Uh, hey, Mikey? Can you, uh, can you put on the last video? I got locked out here. Debating the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? And we're on this thing of... What kind of resurrection happened? If you do say that Jesus came forth from the dead, what kind of body was there? Was it a spiritual body? What does that mean? Is it a physical body? What, what happened? Well, and I was saying, I think this is crucial to talk about Paul here because everybody admits the Pauline data. Critic after critic says there's no eyewitness data except Paul. And so it's important to know what Paul thinks he saw on the way to Damascus. Now, I had said before that in 1 Corinthians 15, he could have chosen the word pneuma. He doesn't. He does say spiritual. He's got an adjective there, but he says soma, body. Philippians chapter 3, it's a short chapter, 21 verses, but Paul says three things in one chapter that indicates that he's talking about a physical resurrection. In the opening verses... He says, I'm a Hebrew of the, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and I, as touching the law, he said, I was a Pharisee. 
Now, it's very well known that the Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection. In fact, according to Acts chapter 23, as Paul was being taken uh, captive by the Romans to prevent him getting killed, he shouted out to the group of people and he said, Why are you taking me? Because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. He means a literal resurrection. And the Pharisees there said, there's nothing wrong with this guy, but the Sadducees don't like it. So as a Pharisee, he's agreeing with the Pharisees. First evidence from Philippians 3, as a Pharisee, he believes in a physical resurrection. Secondly, in verse 11, he says that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, the normal Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. Uh, but in this passage, Philippians 3.11, he puts a prefix on there, ek anastasis. Ek anastasis, according to all Greek scholars that I know of, they translate this passage as the out-resurrection from among the dead. Paul says that I want to attain the out-resurrection. Now, to a Jew, out-resurrection means what goes down is what comes up. It, you come out from the death. And then just a few verses later, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he says, We look from heaven for Jesus, who will change our vile soma, body, to be like unto his glorious soma, or body, when he should have said pneuma, according to this other view. So he's a Pharisee, physical resurrection, ek, anastasis, resurrection from out among the dead ones. And three, he says he will change my body to be like his body. So right there in Philippians 3 alone, I think this picture of Paul, of Jesus being some wispy spirit that appeared to him in Damascus, doesn't fit Paul's own data. That was Gary Habermas. I, I mentioned him in the third week on the resurrection Gary Habermas and N.T. Wright. Those are the two names. If you want to read more up, if you want to read up more on the resurrection, those are the, those are your two guys you'd want to read. We have about four minutes. I, I went through the resurrection pretty fast. I spent more time on atheism. D- does anybody have questions on the resurrection or on atheism? The, the actual the actual bodily re- re- resurrection will be when we're all resurrected. It's at the end. So right. Oh, that gets a lot more into t- on heaven. That's kind of a whole different other topic. Look up. I hate to do this, but look up uh, Randy Alcorn Heaven. It's like 500 pages. It'll give you everything you want to know. That's kind of a whole other topic. Yeah, it's uh, it's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. That's a whole other. Short in a short answer, our spirits are somewhere else. Now, is that like located spatially above us? Probably not. We get this idea heaven's like right above us, and it's like you know. Yes, yes. I'm not. I'm not. No, no, no. I'm not denying that. There was a song that I used to sing. I hate the song. It was like God has prepared a place for those in outer space, and that's so theologically incorrect. Like, there's not some area out there where we're playing harps and we're out in space right now. I don't know where this, where our spirit, people have already died, where their spirits are at right now in heaven, but I'm not sure, you know, where exactly it is. There's a, that's a whole different, okay. Uh, that sort of answers you, but the body, our bodies will not be resurrected till the very end. So. 
It's a little bit after 7.30. Um, anybody else have any other questions? If you do, you could ask me after. Or we can talk about it after. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. And thank you. Thank you just for the hope that we have in your resurrection. That God raised Jesus from the dead. Just thank you that we have a hope that we're not wandering aimlessly. That we know there's a purpose. That all things work out according to your will for those who love you. To us who are called according to your purpose. Thank you for all your many blessings. And thank you for everybody here. Protect everyone on their way home. In your precious name, amen.